Hello and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. I'm Chris McCormack, Associate Editor of the magazine, and today I'm joined by independent arts researcher and commentator Susan Jones and Stephanie Bailey, a writer and editor based in Hong Kong. Stephanie will profile the recent work of Beijing-based artist Wong Tua and his recent exhibition at Blind Spot Gallery. But first, we start with Susan, whose piece comes as a companion piece in many ways to her text in our November issue, and maybe we can talk about that too, uh, and which looks at the ways funding models continue to impoverish the lives of artists. Tessa agreements between institutions, commercial galleries, and the Arts Council are critically questioned to ask who is really benefiting here. Um, Susan, I wondered if we might begin with asking your background to this subject and what led you to research this particular area. I know this has been a long-standing concern of yours, so I wondered for listeners, it'd be interesting to know something about you and why, you know, what your kind of background is here to this particular field of um, inquiry. Yeah, I mean, uh, briefly, I, I started out as an artist mm -hmm. um, and I kind of, made my way through that territory like a, a lot of artists did in the in the 70s by sort of trial and error and I kind of gravitated even then towards kind of understanding more about the environment for my practice and so started kind of being active in in terms of uh, campaigning and sort of sharing of knowledge um, and in particular, sort of looking at the, the scope and value of the artist led and then um, a whole sort of frameworks around, I guess, around working practices and the economics situation for artists. Um, and then uh, I ran an arts organisation called A and the Artists Information Company for about 14 years and, and sort of, in a sense, uh, conducted a, a real life experiment with how to be as supportive as possible to artists mm. in however they wanted to, to pursue their practices, whatever those practices look like and whoever they may be immediately or less immediately aimed at, if you like, that kind of very holistic view about the value, uh, the scope and the value of, of artists' practices. Um, and then um, in, in uh, 2015, I, I did some doctoral study and my topic for research was the sort of the conundrum, if you like, of the relationship between artist policy, artist livelihoods and arts policy. Mm. Um, and so what I've been doing since my PhD is pursuing that line of research. I looked during COVID, for example, at the particular impacts of COVID on freelance artists. And I've uh, published uh, in an academic um, cultural trends journal, um, a, a discursive and analytical um, article about that. Um, and incidentally found that actually some artists um, really, although 75% of artists uh, were excluded from the sort of government support for self-employed or indeed very few of them were supported by Arts Council England's emergency, one-off emergency fund, discovered that something like £62 million went to artists with no strings at all. Mm. Um, which it, it had the effect of allowing them to conduct a 
a sort of whole body of, of R&D, if you like. Um, but uh, I think what, what kind of um, catalyzed the piece that I've just written uh, for our monthly, which is, you know, what I'm here to talk about, was that um, we, Industria, brought out a report which kind of gave real chapter and verse, didn't it, about the hmm. kind of vanishingly small amounts of cash going to artists. I mean, terrible um, uh, examples of that. Um, and they're generally sort of impoverished position and how kind of toxic the infrastructures for artists are. Um, and it made me think that actually, you know, let's look back and see whether this is kind of a new phenomena or not. So, and I kind of referred back to my to my thesis and guess sort of guess what, you know, th this has appeared and reoccurred mm. on a regular basis since sort of 1985, you know, that artists' incomes have never been very good in terms of uh, national averages. Um, and that uh, the amount they get for their practice is always quite a small part of it. Um, uh, that there's a kind of, uh, you know, the Arts Council itself has recognised that there's this schism, if you like, between mm. what artists want from the infrastructure and what the infrastructures for arts are prepared to give artists, if you mm. like, that little bit of a corner space. Um, and as a result, you know, we've we've seen that um, in particular, given that, you know, the visual arts is, is very much an exhibition based uh, field, notwithstanding that some of those exhibitions are outside or manifest in, you know, different kinds of ways than they were historically, that there isn't a proper financial relationship between artists when they exhibit and put their work in front of the public who of course don't pay mm. to um, access it you know and these tiny amounts of money uh, keep uh, appearing um during 1996 uh, one review that was commissioned by the arts council at a time when exhibition payment right was kind of a mandatory scheme you know, 72% of artists didn't actually get any money. And then while I was uh, running AN um, uh, through the artist advisory structure, that research was revisited. And guess what? <laughs> it wasn't radically different. Yeah. You know, but seven, I think it was 71% uh, or so of, of artists at that time. And actually even more so, most of them didn't get any expenses either. And and that's where the industria report picks up again. You know, the visual arts are a huge success story, if you like, for everybody other than mm. an artist. Um, so that caused me to kind of, um, uh, you know, re-examine this notion of what exactly it is that causes that. Um, and it seems that, um, you know, arts organisations are quite aware of that situation. But uh, it's very tellingly, uh, you know, one report that was produced during uh, 2013 showed that 
you know, when curators were asked by uh, the uh, interviewers doing that independent research, if they had more money, what would they spend it on? They said very clearly, well, not on artists. Mm. Um, which is kind of a, a, a big indicator because the, the suggestion there is that, you know, um, and, and this came through certainly in, in the video produced by uh, Lindsay Sears as part of Frank, um, her video, No Money is Included, um, showed that the gallery was terribly, that particular gallery that she was working with, was quite happy to pay £8,000 to have a, a video made, um, uh, you know, but not to pay the full costs of producing mm. the whole installation. So, you know, there is um, an attitudinal problem. And uh, to be honest, it's one that was conveyed to me um, quite clearly during the austerity period when um, galleries would say, well, actually, you know, please don't make us, to please don't ask us to pay, uh, to have kind of standard uh, terms and conditions for artists, because if we do, then, you know, we just can't afford to pay the salaries. Um, you know, I, I, I suppose the, the, the very worrying thing about uh, poor pay and conditions for artists is that, um, you know, the very high percentage of artists who are female, um, who, uh, uh, you know, is part of national averages too, um, are earning uh, are earning uh, less than their male counterparts, and artists who are disabled earn a third less than other artists. Um, now, if we look at the the broad definition of uh, disability to include invisible and visible disabilities, we see that in the visual arts, up to fifty percent of artists. Uh, could be are likely to have some form of neurodivergence, uh, if you like. So, um, you know, any, anything from uh, dyslexia to autism um, and so on, ADHD. Uh, and that for, for, you know, maybe there's something about the arts that is more uh, welcoming and, and enabling, if you like, for, for people with that diet divergence but that the paying conditions and terms sort of legislates against them having um, an equal equitable position in it and the other thing just to think about here is that um, data from the uh, HE statistics agency shows that uh, visual artists graduated as slightly later age, more of them are classed as mature students on starting their courses than uh, graduates as a whole. Um, so if you add together the, 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 the maturity levels, the predominance of, of females and so on, you can see that there's a kind of a push comes to shove equation uh, likely to uh, emerge at the point when uh, 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 women artists are thinking about the possibility of childbearing. 
Um, and then the whole issue, uh, which has been raised in particularly in the performing arts about the difficulties of the infrastructure not accommodating um, childcare and family arrangements. Yeah, and that's true. As, uh, equally, that one could argue that men have access to childcare as too. I think that's also a point to be made. But um, one other point that you make is um, about the ways in which people from lower class backgrounds as well and also people from the global majority significantly have less income as well. Um, mm. There's a kind of, there's a, you know, there's various other factors that contribute to a kind of um, uh, an impoverishment across the arts community. And I would say that largely that is also class driven um, as well. So that's a further point. Uh, in yes, Absolutely. Um, yeah. I wondered if you could say more about the ways in which do you feel the institutions themselves are protecting their own interests over and above those of artists, I suppose. That's where I would think part of the argument seems to be, whereas there's a kind of institutional viewpoint, which is about themselves rather than the, and the artists themselves are more of a kind of peripheral aspect to the institution. Do you, would you, would you seem to? I mean, I, I think, it, I mean, you know, uh, when I ran an arts organization, uh, one has a loyalty to the staff. Uh, they are also protected by uh, employment law and other um, legal uh, frameworks, if you like. Um, and that if you if you go against those things, then of course you know there can be all sorts of consequences about that. But I think it's a it's a bit like the assumption that the institutions must put on their own um, you know life jacket mm -hmm. before they start thinking about anybody else and I think it was very significant during Covid well there's two things really to think about here during Covid of course uh, a lot of institutional staff benefited from uh, furlough mm. um, they had um, opportunity to replenish themselves by, <laughs> by fortuitous accident if you like mm. um, they, they also had uh, opportunities through various programs uh, you know, to take part in um, interesting sort of thinking uh, arenas and so on, like the Reset Programme. Um, and then after a while, they came back to work. But but what I've sensed didn't happen was there wasn't any kind of sense of, of genuine inquiry through those institutions about what on earth had artists been doing. Mm. You know, they may not have been able to use their studios if their studios were in particular kinds of setting. Um, they they lost, uh, you know, a lot of their, you know, employment and income and, and weren't eligible for uh, grant schemes and so on. And then when, when COVID allowed people to come back again, it was almost as if there wasn't a real uh, significant understanding of the environment that had been occurring outside that. So artists talked about the immense freedom of being released from working with those institutions. Um, and that manifested itself in, in a whole range of, of ways, which uh, probably are another article altogether. Yeah. Um, but um, so therefore the institutions uh, went back into how to keep their, mm. keep their critical edge, if you like. 
And I'm, I'm also aware of the fact that the Arts Council is a hard taskmaster. Um, it pursues very, very rigorously a trickle-down model um, mm. and it treats its um, organisations very harshly, mm. I think, if, it, yeah. if they don't perform the tricks well enough. Yeah, and in, in addition to that, I mean, I can say as an NPO Art Monthly itself, you know, the amount of work to actually apply for those funds is phenomenal. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's a lot of work. And if and I think for certain organisations that are certainly new to applying to an NPO, the guarantee or not of get, getting that funding, you know, it's a huge risk because of the amount of time and labour it takes to apply. And I know certain organisations that haven't received funding and you know they had to all that outlay in terms of time and so on is not then recuperated or can't be recuperated financially yeah. so it's a loss um in terms of that as well so it's i mean it's it's certainly not an ideal model um no it's not and and this incessant and hyper competition hmm. is kind of a you know is a feature of neoliberalism isn't it that yeah. and we uh, as a as a na as a country have the most extreme neoliberalism by far across Europe mm. um uh, you know when you could say well you know it's a political choice but I kind of, I kind of do wonder whether or not uh, the arts council's arm, arm's length principle operates at all mm. you know I know that it was um you know wrist length during um you know the the new labor years but is it just fingertips now, or is there no length at all between the two? And and you could argue that with you know culture secretaries like um, Nadine Doris, who can blame the Arts Council by uh, you know for keeping quiet about anything controversial. But I kind of feel that there is um there is a silencing in general of uh, dissent, if you like. Mm. It's not helpful, was a phrase that I heard um, from time to time, yeah. from austerity onwards. It's not helpful to talk about um, inequality in that kind of way. It's not helpful to compare the better paying conditions and working circumstances of salaried staff with the freelance workforce. Mm. Yeah, and it, you know we're seeing more and more. I think because money has, of course, dwindled in many cases, uh, fewer exhibitions, anyhow, in you know across institutions, certainly across the UK, um, where programs would actually be able to deliver bigger, more work, it's thinned out because there is certainly not enough money to support those kinds of practices any longer. And I think if you pick up something of the ways in which. It's either in this artist article or another or the previous one, but the sort of more social filling, filling in the kind of social gaps um, it, or social cohesion rather in society um, and the way in which art tries to plug certain kind of holes. Um, do, is that is that something you're conscious of or seeing more of in, when you're looking at these kinds of subjects? I, I think you know. I would say I would say two things. I think that. You know, we have to we have to set aside the twentieth century models of arts organisation mm. and the kind of museum and and gallery structure per se. And you know, part of that is acknowledging that 
large and medium scale institutions are never going to draw in the audiences that they used to have. Mm. Um, neither are the shopping centres. Mm. You know, neither are all sorts of things that used to be a feature of normal British life. We are in totally changed circumstances. Um, and therefore, the notion that the institutions have the privilege, if you like, through the funding system to work out how to sustain themselves is kind of like, you know, shutting the um, stable door after the horse is bolted. Mm. There, what struck me when I did my review of um, responses to the DCMS committee uh, inquiry into the, the situations for freelancers was how many people from uh, you know large institutions, not necessarily the visual arts, uh, from local authorities, from group, cultural groupings, if you like. Um, we're saying, actually, we need to do things differently. We need to do things more democratically. We need to rethink that kind of fabric and landscape for the arts. And I think never more so than uh, is the case for the, for the visual arts. We have created an impossible visual arts infrastructure hmm. that pits people against each other that creates secrecy, which is unhealthy um, and untenable in the long term, you know, and that the visual arts deserves better than that. I know, I think it's quite phenomenal. I think one statistic is that the number of artists hasn't changed really in terms of all, I think in the, over the period of 30 odd years or something in the UK. I know, it's, it's, it's very interesting because I remember uh, an aside conversation I had with an Arts Council officer probably back in, I don't know, 2008, 2009. Um, and I, I, I said to this officer, um, you know, how exactly does the Arts Council support artists? I have to say this was at a time when probably they supported them far better than they do now. And uh, he's, he said, uh, well, of course, there's too many artists, really. Um, and it was a, it was something that remained in my head, and I I really felt I needed to get to the bottom of it. Are right. there too many artists? Um, and I I referenced back to a, a very substantial study from eight, uh, from nineteen eighty five that established the the number. Um, and then I looked at um, you know visual arts occupations in um, in in twenty eighteen I think it was and discovered there was actually in volume no more artists than there were mm. um, in, in that early report. But what has gone up exponentially are, are the number of visual arts occupation jobs. So mm. all the extra mouths to feed, uh, there's a 42% increase over a period of 20 years. And of course, that's obvious, Chris, isn't it? Because neoliberalism wants to make jobs, mm. but it isn't bothered about the quality of those jobs. Mm. So a lot of those uh, visual arts occupations, I mean, they're not, are they, at leadership level? Um, no, the, best, yeah. <laughs> the best paid salaries are the leadership level, the operations team and marketing. Mm. That's where the good money goes. 
Um, so it isn't in programming, for example. You often find that programming is done by freelance people, mm. freelance curators, freelance commission agents, and so on. And they trickle down their poor budget, if you like, mm. um, to to the artists. You know, so it's it's there's a lot of equal misery at that level. Yeah, and I think also, you know, it's interesting from my perspective as well, working with you know writers and editors and all kinds of, you know, you see much more. In the past, we used to just have critics who were critics, or you know, and actually could maybe live solely on the work of writing. But now, you know, the bylines are very much, you know, numerous hats and numerous jobs that, you know, um, have to, in order to function and to live, you know, there's no kind of way to really, you know, it's incredibly hard, I think, to work solely as a writer um, and work and live from that income. Um, yeah, it just seems to me that there's a kind of shared ground on, on some level between writers and artists. But um, I think, I mean, I think of all. I mean, I think yeah. you know, it's it's easier to uh, equate the situation for writers and visual artists than it is between uh, visual artists and performing arts. Mm. You know, and that it's difficult sometimes, you know, to cross-reference that performing arts data with the mm. visual arts and make proper sense of it. But that, but you know, there are some similarities that you know the common need, if you like, is the the need for equitable and inclusive working conditions for people, whether they're employed or self-employed. You know, mm. um, and and you know, those are the things that we have to to, if you like, put up a flag and fight for. I think uh, an another thing to to kind of create some traction around this this notion of of, of um, the variety of, uh, of of kind of yeah the variety of responses that artists make to this medium called visual mm. arts you know not only what it is but why it is and how it is and who it's for. You know, we talked earlier, didn't we, about the action, mm. exhibition form. It's not the being end all of everything, the exhibition form. You know, that artists, if you like, put that practice into a myriad of different settings for many different types of reasons and have many different kinds of expectation. There's a worrying um, trend, though, that the sort of research-based speculative practice that artists do need to mm. build a kind of surety around their practice. Only about 20% uh, of artists are doing that. And the shortage of R&D funding is, is, you know, I think a serious issue. Mm. You know, whether you're a writer or whether you're an artist um, or indeed whether you're anybody else doing something which has social significance beyond the economic, mm. you do need to do it with a solid research background. Hey, Susan. Well, I think we might be running out of time here. We've had half an hour, so I think we might have to start drawing a close unless you've got any final points to make. I think we might have to wrap it up. Um, but I'm sure we'll get more from you in the future. I'm sure we'll have to have more of these kinds of conversations. Um, 
certainly about how funding might work in a way that is more equitable going ahead i think you know and so you know i mean we've had so many of these conversations over the years and often it leads me to despair but i think <laughs> i think we have to continue to have them um i mean i think i think we need a new model for funding the arts i don't think there's any doubt about that and i'm certainly not the only person saying mm -hmm. that you know we need uh, uh democratic structures uh that guide the decision making and the distribution of public funding mm -hmm. in the arts and in society in general thanks susan and for further information do check out susan's text artist exploitation in the current issue of art monthly and now I'm joined by Stephanie Bailey, who joins us from Hong Kong to discuss the work of the Beijing-based artist Wang Tua. Your profile largely discusses his recent work, the, the Second Interrogation, which was recently on show at Blindspot Gallery, and which stages a conversation between an unnamed Chinese artist and a state censor in the present day, but is filled with references to past moments in political and artistic history in China. I wondered if we could begin by giving an outline of Tuar's work and the ways in which it maps past and present struggles. Yeah, sure. So Wang Tuar is an artist from um, Changchun in China, which is the capital of Jilin province in the Northeast. Um, and so that area uh, was formerly the capital of Japanese occupied Manchukuo um, and also formed part of the Russian concession known as the Chinese Eastern Railway Zone. So kind of a contentious area in many ways, or at least has very rich and overlapping histories. Um, and he's referenced Changchun in uh, in one work in particular that I, I've had a closer look at, which is the Northeast Tetralogy, which is a series of four works where he explores, um, he kind of, intermingles histo historical moments with kind of magic realist allusions to shamanism um and the one that where he really centers Changchun is called Tungus mm -hmm. um and it departs from a period in um the Chinese Civil War effectively when Changchun was a base for the Guomindang's army um and it had come under siege by the People's Liberation Army uh, and yeah, so Tungus kind of weaves together um, different trajectories. So there's uh, two soldiers who come from the Korean independent division of the PLA, and they're wandering through a snowscape. It's sort of very Tarkovsky, actually, in a way, you know, they're wandering this sort of barren snowscape. And what comes up are memories that they're looking for Changchun, but what comes up are memories from Korea. There's allusions to the, the Jeju Island uprising, um, which happened in response to the Korea, Korea's partition um, and was suppressed in 1949 by the US-backed army of the ROK. Uh, and then we cut to scenes where there's a scholar um, in Changchun who's slowly starving to death. And there's always there's a scene in the in the work where, you know, he's got his characteristic round scholar's glasses he's wearing yeah. his black scholar's robes and it's it's sort of evocative of that scene of you know Christian marker and la jete you know the the person lying down and oh, their yeah. eyes are covered and you know you're kind of caught in your own reveries and he's uh thinking back to his youth of well his time as a young scholar although I think in the way that um Wang Tuo's work happens is that it's likely that he is the young scholar but there are these kinds of slippages right where 
you're just moving between times, you're moving between subjectivities. And so we see him as a young scholar in the May 4th movement. And the May 4th movement was something that happened in China in um, 1919, if I remember correctly. And it was, well, it's named after, the May 4th movement was a cultural movement that was named after a student uprising or a student-led protest in Beijing, which were effectively um, protesting uh, the Qing government's capitulation to um, to foreign interests, effectively. So I think at the the the, the May Fourth Movement, they were protesting the transferal of Shandong's um, effectively control of Shandong from German to Japanese control, and this is how the May Fourth Movement. Um, well, that's the that's the events of May Fourth after which the May Fourth Movement um, was named, and so this old starving scholar in you know the Chinese Civil War, the siege of Changchun. Um, is thinking back to this moment, yeah. And so, <laughs> sorry, I was going to ask, and that's a single channel video work that's Tungus. Yes, it's... yes, it's it's very um, cinematic, and you know the Northeast Tetralogy. All of the films are quite mm. different. Like one of my favorites, actually, from that is um, oh, let me just pull up the name. It's uh, Distorting Words, and that's actually okay. a three channel video yeah. and the thing that i just love about that work actually is the sound editing it's okay. the music it's so and it's wonderful and for me it's it's one of the works where you can really see twas ability to cut and overlap right it's not just images and stories that he's working with he's working with sound so yeah um and of course i mentioned that in the profile because tungus was uh something that he had raised in our conversations because Apparently, it had been recently censored out of a show in Shanghai, which was an interesting experience or an interesting incident because the piece had been shown around before in China and, and also had been included in his solo exhibition at the UCCA in Beijing um, a few years ago. So, yeah. And so he's. Yeah, so, so he's obviously it's indicative of a certain policing or increasing surveillance around types of work that's being shown. Would you argue, is that the case, do you think? Well, I mean, you know, what's interesting is that another curator who I follow and I'm a massive fan of um, just opened a show in Beijing. And I think she had mentioned that, you know, she had actually shared this on Instagram that a message from a cultural censor who'd basically said, we would prefer that you don't show this work. Mm -hmm. It's you know, kind of, I think it was depressing or something like this, or, you know, wasn't shed, uh, shedding a positive light on history. And she sort of posted about it. But I think in the end, she decided to show the work anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, that's the thing that I find quite interesting when talking about um, these kinds of practices is that, uh, and I've actually spoken with this curator, a particular curator about it before, that it's very elastic and it's very fluid actually how these things work. And I think that Wang Tuo's work, Second Interrogation, which was the piece that I really focused on, mm. it really brings that to the foreground because ultimately, um, you know, these conditions of censorship or security for the lack of a better term is often, um, enacted by street level bureaucrats right it's people mm. um and and the second interrogation does this so beautifully it's honestly i think just the most precise and beautifully written script for both parts 
So it's a two-part video installation, but effectively yeah. both of these installations present dialogues. Mm. Um, and the first part, yes, you have, it opens with, um, you know, your classic exhibition, you know, public talk, right? The artist having a discussion about their work and, you know, their position as the expert. He's introducing the China Avant-Garde exhibition, which was a seminal exhibition um, that was staged in 1989 it's it's sort of it's mythological in its reach and and it showed the who's who of contemporary art in China all of the radical avant-garde um, artists who made a name for themselves um and he's talking about seven performances that happened on the opening of that exhibition and actually the conditions for that exhibition to happen it was at the National Museum of Art in, in mm -hmm. Beijing um, was for there not to be performances, apparently. So, you know, these these were um, uh, these were radical interventions, basically. Yeah. He talks about these, and it's, you know, structured in your classic Q&A, um, first between the moderator and the artist, and then it opens up to um, the public Q&A, and then we, we meet the censor, the cultural right. censor. And he asks great questions. <laughs> 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 um, and the, the, what's beautiful about it is that the way that Wang Tao structures this is that it's not just a dialogue between two people, it's a dialogue with each person with themselves. So the censor asks a question probing, you know, what does he mean about how this work has political resonance today or how does a work's political uh, or historical resonance work within the present? Like how does how does the resonances of moments like the China avant-garde travel through time effectively? Hmm. And and when each speaker, it's sometimes it's when they, they stop speaking. Sometimes when we see the um, the other person listening, we go into their internal monologue. So I should say it's a split screen and it's it's presented in a chevron shape. So you can't actually follow the entire script, right? You have to move between, or you choose to stay with one. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, what was so fascinating is that, you know, the censor in his internal monologue at one point goes, you know, there's so many of us, and I'm paraphrasing here, he's saying like, we're mm -hmm. everywhere, you know, cultural critics, yada, yada. So you kind of think, my God, it's, you know, it, you know, it, it's so embedded, right? Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, when you listen to the artist's internal monologue, when they talk about how they have to watch and they're watching what they say, or they're, you know, really tempering um, their words, and it's not just for political reasons it's also for survival in the art in the art system hmm. um you st start to realize and this is kind of what happens in Wang Tor's film a video installation you know you begin to realize that the art there's censorious aspects of the artist and there are artistic aspects of the censor hmm. um, yeah so I found that really fascinating yeah they sort of they, they start sharing or overlapping each other's concerns is that is yeah, I mean, in the, end, there's almost a, in the end of the, the the work, there's almost an overcorrection. It's a yeah. really phenomenal ending, I've got to say, because um, the big, you know, the big performance that everyone always talks about with regards to the China avant-garde is Xiao Lu's shooting of her yeah. installation dialogue. And, you know, I think I can't remember um, precisely, but I think it was uh I think there was like a timed article at the time or maybe it was reported in hindsight but someone had called it the the sounding shot of the Tiananmen mm. Square protest right and everything that happened afterwards and it's often been remembered as such although it's much more complicated than that um 
Yeah, I mean, maybe you could describe the, the actual performance because it is quite startling, Li Shen's performance. I know it's... This was Shaolu. Yeah. Oh, Shaolu, so, Yeah, so it's called Dialogue and basically it's it was two phone booths um, put together and I think there was a mirror behind the phone booths and again, uh, you know, I'm going to have to fact check myself yeah. on these things. But... Um, yeah, and so basically, it was these two phone booths put together. There was images, uh, you know, you were there were images of a person on either booth, their backs to you, so you were looking at their backs. And what happened is, um, Shaolu basically came up and she shot at the installation twice, and it caused the 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 the, the exhibition was shut down. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, an intense moment, effectively. And, yeah. you know, favorite part of the second interrogation. So I think it's important to say that there actually there have been um, writings about Shaolu's gesture, which was that it was actually about something that was happening in her own personal life at the time. Oh, okay. and so any kind of like retroactive reading of it, connecting it to Tiananmen um, has to be taken with a grain of salt or, mm -hmm. or as, you know, I think Wang Tuo suggests in his dialogue with the that the artist engages in with the moderator in the talk, right, or in his presentation of these performances, it's the question of, um, you know, how a work can grow after mm. its initial expression. Um, and that's something that's completely vital and viable, but the way that we understand it, I guess, you know, what we project onto things, which in a way is what, you know, that's what Shalu was doing. She was shooting at her, her artwork, right? That's a form of projection in a way. Mm. Um, and so that's how, you know, he sort of senses on that for in a way, because I think whenever we talk about the seven sins, that's what these seven performances were called. I think what will immediately come to a lot of people's minds is Shaolu's shooting of the, yeah. the telephone booths. And then the end of the work. So what happens is the the censor, you know, asks the questions from the audience. It's a very civilized exchange. But when he pushes the artist to you know, really engage with what he's asking, the artist sort of goes into a monologue in his own mind, sort of really thinking about how he's retreated to him into himself and how he's learned to kind of hide certain things or temper certain things. And then um, he smiles, and you know, we we watch him in silence, and then he smiles and he says, "Oh, if only," and I'm paraphrasing again, "if only." you know, more people in um, the Chinese contemporary art world were as smart as you, right? And then he suggests that they take this conversation um, offline effectively and they end up in this room and uh, they're having tea. And we learned this um, at one kind of moment in the work when the artist is, we see the artist with another friend of his who appears in the second part of this um uh, video installation, two-part video installation, right? Um, so you know the it's a the the I, the phrase being taken to tea is a euphemism for being questioned by the state. So what we do, what we see after this public talk is um, Wang Tuo on this. Uh, not Wang Tuo, sorry, that's me projecting onto him. Freudian slip, I guess. Um, <laughs> well, I guess it's we, an invisible space, really, between him performing <laughs> the role of an unnamed artist. Well, and, exactly. I mean. Well, he actually says that for him, it's almost like he's both 
And mm. I think that's the truest portrait, right? I think anyone, actually, if you actually take this out of the context of China, you could really put this, I think anyone could relate to it who's in the art yeah. system or at least the mainstream art system, right? Or anyone who's kind of um, embedded in a situation where they're often having to compromise uh, both with their own ideals and with the conditions and realities of the time. But anyway, so to just to round off that point, yeah, the mm -hmm. ending is phenomenal because we've got the Shaolu, you know, that beginning with the iconic, you know, shooting. And then the censor and the artist are in this room and they're really going into a deep, you know, one-to-one. -one. And at the end, there is an overcorrection where the censor, in a way, becomes the revolutionary. It's really quite breathtaking, actually, at the end, when he says, I think I've got to pull it up because the line is, I don't know if I have it here. Yeah when he talks about sometimes when you've been in the system for too long, oh, well, I'll just paraphrase him at this yeah. point. Um, you know, when you've been in the sense of, uh, in the system too long, you know, sometimes irrationality is, you know, the yeah, best. Is this, is this like sometimes when you struggle in a system and have not become completely numb, you should stop believing in rationality. Is yeah, 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 yeah. And then, um, and then, what we cut to is you know that it's the dramatization um which Tor does beautifully he dramatizes each of the seven performances when they're first introduced and it's a very minimalist dramatization it's like clean studio and just the single work the performance and we just we stare down the barrel of the gun mm. and i think it's an incredible moving end yeah mm. Yeah, I mean, it, is, it sounds like an incredible video, to be fair. And, um, you know, I hope it gets seen outside of uh, Hong Kong, really. Um, but also, it's a two-part video, so we've yet to get to the second part. So, <laughs> so The second part is a lot more intense, to be honest. And, like, I would say I would need to have more time with that part. And I've thought about this okay. because he actually, the second part is effectively a manifesto. And he's doing it through, um, it's a dialogue again, and we have two, it's the ghosts of two artists. Um, one of the artists we had seen in the first part, and in that first part, um, we had seen him talking to the artist, the yeah. artist um, who is uh, connecting with the censor. So this associate of his is actually talking about how, you know, he's getting more attention on his work and he's having to be more careful. Um, and then so in the second part we see, and this is a trigger warning, that he has ended his um, his life. Mm. And so his ghost effectively engages in a conversation with Datong Dajang, who was one of the artists um, who performed at the China Avant-Garde. And he did a performance with three, two other artists where they dressed up as ghosts. Mm. Um, yeah, it's and then they had work, isn't it? I mean, here we get into, it seems much more denser history in a sense. It's so dense. And, yeah. you know, to be honest, uh, I would not want to pretend to be an expert in Chinese politics here. Yeah. He talks about, you know, the, he talks about the history, in a way he's talking about the kind of historical trajectory of the Chinese political system, right? Mm. And you know, how, how have we basically reached this structure as it is today? Um, and of course, I think that you know, this relates to what came before, which was the Ting, um, the last dynasty, the Ting yeah. dynasty. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, so he's kind of talked, like, so in this dialogue, they're sort of talking about 
control, you know, mm. historical forms of control, how we deal with control. And as this uh, dialogue is happening between these two ghosts, what we're also seeing is the artist from part one directing a performance in a gallery. And in that gallery, there are these big banners coming down the wall, like political insignia, basically, yeah. with the U-turn street sign symbol that was on the posters for the China avant-garde. And it's just young people, like it's as if it's a performance in a gallery and he's just directing them as we're hearing this dialogue happening. And, you know, there are some really, it's very dense, I've got to say, and there are questions that are posed, like, you know, when into how, what happens when intellectuals compromise to the extent that they're now subsumed? Mm. Um, you know, what happens when uh, allies become informants of one another, right? It's all about what happens when the pressure of control gets so much that you have to make a choice, whether you understand that you're doing it or not. And in a way, I think that these choices are sometimes blameless in the sense that you're part of a much bigger um, uh, force. Do you know what I mean? Especially mm. when you think about the, the the charges of history or the historical legacies that I think in China in particular are quite dense. You know what I mean? Like, you know, they, there's this phrase that um, in China that, you know, the hundred years of humiliation, which was, you know, the period from the Qing to the sort of communist revolution. And I think a little bit after. Um, yeah, I'm probably digressing at this point. So, yeah. So, I mean, he's basically giving us a bit of an overview of the historical dynamics that have led us to the present day. And as he's doing that through this dialogue between two ghosts, we're seeing people of the present day engaging in a performance that feels cathartic, right? But it's what they're moving as one and there's something a bit ominous about it at the same time. And I think this intensifies when we see the censor appear in this group and he looks confused and, or he's, you know, unsure, because as he's moving within this group, their movements are becoming more erratic. And he begins to try and separate them. And then I guess in a mirror to the ending of the first part, he ends up pulling out a gun. Mm. And um, he first points it at the artist. And th again, it's a really phenomenal ending, I have to tell you, like, even when I'm thinking about it, I get goosebumps, actually. So he points it at the artist, and then he they look at each other and then he looks up to the the ceiling, the sensor points the gun at the ceiling. And then we just end with the artist just kind of looking kind of with amazement, intensity at what has just transpired. Mm. And then it ends. Um, so yeah, really powerful yeah. work on it. And can we, cause you, you mentioned a little bit about the actual reaction to this work. Cause it was recently shown in the blind spot yeah. earlier this year. Can we, maybe say a few things about how the work was received in Hong Kong. Um, yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, when I saw it, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, you know, it was interesting also because, you know, certain things in the work, for example, allusions to Tiananmen and a particular date in time, um, have become increasingly police because of what's happened in the city recently. And yeah, people, uh, apparently people reached out to Tor to ask him if he was okay, because I think, you know, at the moment we're navigating a new terrain and he was pretty cool about it. He was like, you know, it's, 
and I, he when I spoke to him about it he was like listen I'm I, in China we've gone through this mm. you know we've gone through this for a long time um you know and he actually said for for thousands of years and that's quite true when you look at the kind of tradition of the literati in China and these stories of like the seven intellectuals who go, who who are so disillusioned by court life that they retreat into nature so nature is almost a yeah you know what I mean it's a metaphor um and and I think that it was a really good thing to happen to be honest because you know at the moment in Hong Kong I think we're or and I can't speak for the whole city right like and I can't even speak for the whole art world right but from what I've seen in exhibitions and things there's a sort of wayfinding happening and that's a totally natural thing to happen I mean when I was thinking about um Tor's work today I was thinking about and that show at Blindspot in particular I was thinking about it in relation to um a show that I just saw at Tomorrow Maybe which is a really fantastic exhibition and um, right. space run out of Eaton which is a hotel in Hong Kong but their program is fantastic it was sort of I think launched by Chantal Wong who's this really great curator and anyway so they have a show there was a recent show by La Yok Moy and I loved it because she had basically created um, a series of star maps, star charts, right? One of them, you know, referencing the Dunhuang star chart, which is like the earliest star atlas in the world, I think. And um, yeah, it was called Draw Me a River, Take Me to a Star or something. I have to, again, fact check myself on this. And um, I have it right here, actually. Take Me to the River, Draw Me a Star. And um she had sort of anchored the show to a reference, 1963, which was the driest year on record in Hong Kong at the time. And um, she recreates in a three-channel video um, aspects of a ritual that villagers in Shengshui, um, which is sort of like a rural area in Hong Kong, um, uh, they basically performed a ritual in order to call for the rain. And that's kind of like all we're really given um, about this, you know. So what happens then is that we have this work where we see aspects of this ritual happen. And then there are a series of maps and there was a performative um, sort of area in the center of the space where Loyot Moy and a collaborator had actually, you know, hammered a star map in the space in real time. So there were three maps that she had um, copied and one of them was dated 1898 the other one was 1888 and the other one the third one was 1901 okay. and she doesn't tell us anything about uh what these dates are right so that was really cool for me because she's not giving us any information but in the the tr in the grand tradition of astrology astronomy you know, you have to try and figure out the dots. And so I think if you're in Hong Kong and if you haven't, if you know a little bit about Hong Kong history, then 80, 1898 is your starting point because that's when the Ting government signs a 99 year lease granting the British control of Hong Kong's new territories. That's why they were called the new territories. So it was the third, I think, installment of the unequal treaties effectively. But this one's quite interesting because what happened in 1898, apparently they signed it. The Ting government signed the lease to the British, gave Hong Kong new territories to them for 99 years. 
Um, and then I think after that, the the village, the clans of that area were so incensed that they stood up and fought a six day war. Wow. And okay. when you think about it, it's like, yeah, thrown under the government by the Ting. Right. No choice. Just signed above your head. And then, you're, you know, you're given to a new um, ruler. Mm. Um, and. And then if you follow that trajectory, then 1888 and 1901 are quite legible because 1888 was the year um, that the China and the US signed the Bayard Jiang Treaty, which basically prohibited Chinese migration or the return of Chinese um, migrants who had been in the US but had left uh, for 20 years. And then the 1901 date, I assume, um, refers to the Boxer Protocol, which was when the Ting government were forced to submit to um, international demands um, after the Boxer Rebellion in China, which was an attempt to expel colonialists and missionaries from China, you know. Mm. Um, and the reason I bring this up, actually, in relation to Tuan, yeah. you know, kind of how does this fit into Hong Kong? And so Loyot Moy had this show, and then Blind Spots show after uh, Tuan was... Long Chihua, who's, you know, a real important figure in the contemporary art scene in Hong Kong. And he did a show that kind of looked at 1982, uh, which was when the negotiations effectively began um, for the Sino-British Joint Declaration to be signed in 1984. And there's one work where he has this vinyl print on canvas of a picture of Hong Kong, probably from the 70s or something, and he's got a pen and the pen is just stabbed into the picture and the ink is just bleeding down, you know? Um, yeah, and I, mean, I guess, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, I mean, I'm, I'm just interested to see how Tuas work sits amongst works that are being currently yeah. shown in Hong Kong. So it is fascinating to hear these uh, parallel works that are being shown, because I think that's what I was interested to know more about, really, was how does this work situate itself currently within, yeah, the art scene there in, in Hong Kong? Um, are many artists similarly evoking or provoking these kinds of spaces? I think that people are thinking, you know, mm. and it, and looking for ways, right? I think that we're navigating. And again, I say we, but I'm not talking for everyone. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think, you know, when I think about that image of the, you know, that image that's stabbed with a pen and you, you know, you kind of really think about, you know, where Hong Kong is situated. I mean, if you come back to Law Yop Moy's show, she talks about the 1963 water shortage, but what's so fascinating about that year as well is that the 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 British were in had already started to take water from China. There was an agreement to get it from Guangdong, which was next door, mm. uh, uh, and the they and during the water shortage, apparently Zhu Enlai, um, you know, thought that he was you know thinking in terms of the party politics, you know, the Cold War. He was he saw this as an opportunity for China to really, uh, you know, connect with Hong Kong or kind of have some sway over the people. And I think they had even offered Hong Kong water for free. And the British, of course, declined. And before they finally took an agreement with the Chinese to get water, they had explored the option of shipping water from Japan, which is crazy when you think that it's just right next door. Yeah. Um, but what's so interesting is that at that time they were thinking to give it to for free. but now apparently i think hong kong gets hong kong gets water most of its water from china but it's also the most expensive or it's mm. like you know many times more expensive than how much it costs for example in shenzhen so i mean i bring this up again with tour because you know there's this kind of entanglement i think that 
really needs to be explored. And I think artists are exploring that. I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap it up here as we are out of time. But please do read Stephanie Bailey's profile on One Twelve's work in the current issue of Art Monthly. That leads me to thank both Stephanie and Susan for joining me today. And to our listeners, have a great summer. We'll be back in September.